So I almost didn't wear a coat tonight. Jacob told me not to. The two gentlemen up here look very fine in their coats. So I decided to leave it up to chance. And if we stood for the song before coat, we didn't. So here we are. Thank, nice song. Way to go. No, it's good. I need to say a couple of things before we get started tonight. I just want to thank you so much for your support. Thank you so much for your support. And thank you for being here for the local people and the visitors. And I want you to understand how serious I am when I thank you for coming and worshiping God with us and supporting this. I have four kids at home. I have an 18-year-old daughter that I'm not going to have very much longer at our home, a 16-year-old son, an 8-year-old mini-me. Anybody have one of those? I've got one of those. And a little 6-year-old little girl. And just to be honest with you, it's becoming very difficult to justify leaving them for any reason at all, even gospel meetings. But when I come to a place like this and I hear the singing and I see the love for God and people show up and they come back on Sunday night and people drive from other states to be here and we just want to do this together, it makes a really big difference. And I get to get on the phone tonight with my wife and tell her about people that I saw I hadn't seen in a while and conversations and it matters. People used to say when I first started preaching, tell your wife, thanks for letting you come. And I thought it was just one of those things people say, I need to thank her for her patience and letting me be here. So thank you for making that possible, making it worth the while to do so. Our kids are, they're the ones we're here to talk about. Our theme is really simple this week, generational faith, which we've explained and I'll do so very briefly. It's very simple. Everyone in this room wants to get to heaven. You want all of your kids to get to heaven. You want all of your grandchildren in heaven. There's really only one thing that matters. Raising a family like Abraham was charged to do, who love and serve the Lord so we can inherit the blessings God has intended for us. And while I am sure everywhere across this country and world, every church wants all of their children to grow up and be faithful to God, it basically never happens. Churches everywhere, they lose young people, sometimes a quarter of them, sometimes half of them, sometimes almost all of them, and we need to fix that. We need to give our kids the best chance possible. I understand that when children grow up, move out, they're going to make their own decisions. You can't control that. But let's give them the best possible chance. And so tonight, you're about to get my best shot at that, biblically speaking. If somebody said, Chris, from your study of the scripture, can you come up with four or five things that if we will engage in these things and make them a serious part of who we are, we give our children a wonderful chance at 100% faithfulness in the church, this would be the lesson that I would deliver. So I'm hopeful to share these things with you. We have a lot of data tonight. I'll package it together. Really, there are five points. They could be five sermons. In fact, as I was looking at this today, I was thinking maybe preach this and then one for each for the rest of the series. I might do that sometime. But remember, you got some notes you can pick up in the back. But to get started, I need to tell you a little bit about my raising. I was born in the church, as they say, raised in the church. But it wasn't maybe a church like most of you would recognize. We call them down in Texas uh, institutional churches or liberal church. I'm not a big label guy. Everybody labels everybody something. But those are terms that you would recognize. We had, when I was young, a ton of fun. And I mean lots of it. We got donuts in Bible class every Sunday morning. There was a coffee bar attached to our auditorium. We're like mid-service. You could go over there and get a refill if you wanted. 
They were big screen TVs and Coke machines and upstairs gymnasiums and the whole deal. We had it all. We had the children's church, everything. And the, the target for young people, the game plan for saving our young people was this. They studied the Bible with us. Let's not say that they didn't. We studied scripture. We learned it. But the major focus was if we can entertain our young people, if we can keep them filled with sugar and stuff to do with that energy and trigger the emotion, that's what will keep the young people. So for most of my young life, up until the age of about 13, we stayed heavily entertained. We had lock-ins overnight for Adam Sandler series. I mean, really, think about that a minute. And there was lots of holding hands. We gathered around a lot of fires. There were quite a bit of hugging and definitely just bunches of kumbaya. Like we sing kumbaya all the time. I don't even know what that means. I do now. But that was the game plan. Well, about the age 13, my parents made a huge change. Really, the, the thing that made the difference was it was Super Bowl. It's funny that I'm here during Super Bowl week. It was Super Bowl Sunday, and the preacher said, five-minute sermon tonight, big screen upstairs, Super Bowl's playing, free Coke machine night. And that's the night that my parents said, we need to go somewhere else. So we made a dramatic change, and I mean dramatic. Well, you probably would know some of that. We've got some super conservative thinking people in the room tonight, and we went to a place where, don't get me wrong now, the young people, we had our parties, you know, we, New Year's Eve, we'd go to somebody's house, and we had a little bit of fun. Every once in a while, there was even a campfire, no holding hands. But for the most part, the strategy in the church was this. Let's just teach the kids the Word of God. Let's get them to know the Word, understand the Word, see the way the Bible fit together. And I use the word submission here to keep the alliteration going, but a better word would be authority. Matthew 28, man now, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we read it just about every single week. We talked about following the authority of the Lord. And that was the heavy focus from the age I was about 13 up through my teenage years. Now here's what's really interesting about that. Over the years, I was able to track three groups of young people. It's about 40 young people who all of us are around 40 years of age now. In the top category, I had about 15 friends who were raised in that environment you see at the top and lived out their entire youth in that environment. About 10 of us are the group in the middle. We're somewhere in our teenage years. Our family got away from that and moved toward this. And then I have about 15 friends in this category. And so I tracked them pretty much all of them down over the last two years. Want to know how everybody was doing? You know, they've got this social media thing going. It's not really that hard to do. And I found out that the number of those who were still faithful was a pretty consistent number. 80%. Except it didn't all work out the way that it looks. You probably can guess this, but it was actually more. I've skewed these numbers away from emphasizing my point, actually. The true numbers would be even a little bit more stretched out. But 80% of those who were raised to honor God because He's God still honored God. Because guess what? The Scripture and authority never changes. Those of us who transferred over along the way, I'm thankful to say that about 80% of us are still serving God. But of those who were locked into entertainment and emotion, at least, it's more like 90, at least 80% of them changed and left the faith altogether. And it's the saddest story you've ever seen because entertainment got boring and the church couldn't keep up. And emotions, you guys may not know this, but teenagers' emotions tend to change from time to time. And churches shouldn't be chasing those either. And so in the end, most of those people are gone. So here's what happened. I've got a whole sermon on this. I'm not going to preach it. That's about all you're going to get on that. But here's the thing. 
Around the age of 20, I went out and started preaching at a little church in Cleveland, Texas. Had some young people in it, and I had it all figured out. I mean, it had it figured out. They have young people there. We wanted those young people to be faithful, and I'd figured out the secret. If we just be sure not to try and entertain them, and we be sure not to just try to pull at their emotional sensitivities, and we just study the Scripture all the time, Bible classes on evidences and the Bible survey and the Gospels, and we preached on authority over and over again, then in my first preaching work, with about 10 or 20 young people, we're going to hit 80% or more who are faithful. And it went like, like that. This was very confusing to me. I was only there for three or four of those years, but ultimately I played a part in it as well. We did it right. We were teaching all the right things. And yet even with a sound church, preaching, eldership, etc., we lost almost all of those young people. So I started doing a little bit of research. And it turns out that happens a lot. The church where I preach now, love this church in Lindell, Texas. Some of you have come through and visited the church in Lindell, Texas. At that church, one generation ago, the 40-year-olds, I wasn't there then, they lost 80% of their young people. Only 20% of those who are now 40 raised in that church are still going to church. The generation before that, that are now in their 60s, the Lindell church lost 80% of their young people. I knew those preachers and those elders, they're sound and they're strong. And so there was one lesson I figured out pretty early on, that this is an incredible basis for beginning and building, but it's not going to be enough. Preachers preaching the truth, eldership standing for the truth. Now you might, don't misinterpret the slide here. Guys, I hate figures of speech. I think most of them are totally weird and we should just erase them all. I have no idea why anybody would ever bite a bullet or think about biting a bullet. They're dumb. But I'll tell you one that I do understand. Throwing out the baby with the bathwater, I think I do get that one. Sometimes the bathwater gets dirty. You've got to get the bathwater out, keep the baby. Now, if we say, well, look at there, Chris, look at your experiences. Let's get back and try something else and get the scripture out. You're throwing the baby out, okay? This is a pure, beautiful baby of truth. But you know what? Even in sound, that's our term, right? Churches like this one, there can be a lot of dirty bathwater. So I want to give you five things tonight. We've got to get all five of them going. This is one of them. That's all we're going to say about that. But there are four other things that need to happen. You see, I went back to that church where I grew up from age 13 through 18, the sound church, where almost all of them are still faithful. And where they're raising kids and almost all of their kids are faithful. And I started digging in a little bit deeper. What else was going on? And we've tried to replicate not just this, but several other things at the Lindale Church, and so far, it's looking pretty good. Can I share some of those with you tonight? Let's begin in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, you're going to end up with a slide that looks a lot like this. You see the thing at the top, I'm going to add four other things to it. Number one, number one, who can contribute to faithful young Christians? The number one person that has the largest impact, presence, and determination of the faith of a young Christian is the young Christian themselves. What we have to begin to see here is, when our young people decide to become Christians, they're saying, I am now ready to take responsibility for my own faith. We baptize them pretty young, don't we? 10, 11, 12, 
We go to Romans 6 and we read verses 3 and 4 to our 13-year-old. And it says in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And we preach that, and our young teens, they want to be a part of that, and they get baptized into Christ, and we stop reading. That's enough Romans 6. Let's move on to something else. Do you know what else Romans 6 teaches? It teaches that when you're ready to become a Christian, you're ready to take personal ownership of the things you say and you do. You're ready to change your life. You're no longer dependent on your parents' faith. Certainly they're important, but it's your faith now. Before you're a Christian, when you're really, really young, if you're not doing the right thing in judgment, your parents bear all the responsibility for that because they should be doing a better job. But once you become a Christian, you take it in. Look in verse 11. It's not just about baptism here. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. We're talking about 10-year-olds, 12, 13, 15, 16-year-olds who have to understand that it's not just about the water. It's about saying, I died to sin. Therefore, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Young people now have to take responsibility for their own bodies, for not using their bodies for sin and for using their bodies to produce righteousness. You know, yesterday in the, in the worship services, we didn't talk a lot about the responsibilities of these great young people over here. We talked to parents a lot. Parents and grandparents about taking responsibility and setting the right example. But last night, we're at the Rimfro's house, and we had some great barbecue from a gas station. Was I supposed to say that? It was delicious. It was delicious. Okay. Anyway, that's what was special about it. But anyway, 30 young people, 30 30 gathered in their living room. Ages, I think what Ellie and them are around 12. I think Ethan's what, 17 or 18? Like ranging from around 12 to 18. We had Rob in there and and everybody was there. It was really cool. So we're in there and I looked at them and said, listen, it's time to change the narrative here. The number one person responsible for your faith if you're a Christian is you. Your prayer life your Bible study, the way you go to God, and the faith that you are building. Now, when parents are faithful, it gives kids a better chance, but I know some great faithful people raised with atrocious parents. Being raised in a sound church certainly gives them a leg up, but I know some completely committed, incredible Christians who were raised taught many wrong things in the church. But you know what they did? They took responsibility for their own beliefs and choices And they found the truth for themselves. You know, I started studying, remembering actually, back when I was a teenager in that church. Guess what happened at the humble Church of Christ when a 15-year-old got in trouble? A Christian 15-year-old. Let me tell you what the elders did not do. They did not call my mom and my dad and say, Scott, Cindy, we need to sit down. Chris is making some problems. You need to do something about that. Why would they do that? I'm a member of the church and a Christian. I had to sit in a room full of elders as a 15-year-old and answer for some of the things that I'd been doing. Because I'm responsible to that eldership just like they are. One of the things they really emphasize is, if you're ready to be a Christian, you're ready to stand up for who you are. 
How many of these kids, you know, they go into college and early 20s and they start saying all this stuff like, well, you know, I think as a teenager, it's really just my parents' faith. You know, I never really had my own faith. I just kind of followed mom and dad around. Well, that was your fault. If you were a Christian, you signed on to stop doing that and start reading and learning for yourself. So the first thing and the biggest thing, the biggest thing is for our young people to realize that you have, can I use like a really weird term now? You have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You have that now. That's what you have. And growing that is really important. Personal commitment is really important. And personal accountability. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy 4. I understand that it's Paul to Timothy here, and he may have been as old as maybe 30 or so, but he's referencing the young here. Those who choose to follow Jesus in their younger years. And you say, well, how low would that number go? And I'm going to tell you, it'll go as low as the depth of that water right there. That's how low it goes. If a person goes down in that water and comes up, no matter how old they are, they succumb to an instruction for life. And here it is. Verse 12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in your speech and conduct and love, your faith and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the reading of Scripture, the public if it be, private if it be, reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. He goes on to talk about spiritual gifts. And then he says in verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. You know what I want my 16-year-old to know, who's a Christian now? I want him to know that your choices, your attitude, the things you say are affecting all of the boys at this church who are younger than you. And when you get up and give a talk, it's not, oh, cute Luke gives another little talk. No, adults are listening to you preach now, son. You're a guy who's got to stand up for what he's saying because you cast a shadow. All Christians cast shadows. Man, is that the kind of stuff we're talking to our young people about? Their personal responsibility and accountability. I really think that elders can help with this. If you see a Christian young person in your church struggling, go around the middleman. Have a conversation with them. And mom and dad, and I know you guys, I know you guys are great. I met your kids, they're great. But let's just please, please stop making excuses for our teenage kids. Can we just, can we stop? Well, boys will be boys. I got a better line for you. Christians will be Christians. What's he doing? That's the kind of attitude that we need to have. Accountability. You know what's really interesting, and I, I need to move on or be here all night, but when I see boys who are really struggling with their faith, it's usually because they have fathers who are not disciplinarians and they actually crave it. They're craving an authority figure in their lives and they respond very well to that, which is beautiful because that's what God is. And that's what we want to show them. So there's the first thing. First thing, hey, I was just talking to you guys this time. Yesterday you had to hear me talk to the parents and there were paddles and everything. But now, now you're a part of this. So let me give you a second thing, and I still want to talk to our younger people. Just want parents to help with this. Just help us with this. Here's the second thing. Let's go to some really familiar passages, but we're going to dig in a little bit deeper. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. I think you know about what's going to happen. 1 Corinthians 15. So if we attend a church where Scripture and authority are taught, and our young people answer for their own decisions and the way they use their time, here's another thing. Every friend you choose is going to shape who you are. By the way, that's like Legos. That's age 4 to 99 right there. 
Every friend you choose, every person you put around you will have an effect on who you are. Your parents, I mean, you're a Christian, you're 16, or, or maybe you're even younger than that. But, you know, if you become a Christian, like, you've got to go out and pick your friends now. I can't have a kid in his 20s who's fallen away from the Lord. I'm like, why'd you fall away from the Lord? Well, when I was a teenager, my parents let me hang out with a bunch of heathens. What do you mean your parents? Were you a Christian then? Well, yeah, but wait a minute. So you, as a child of God at age 14, decided to hang out with heathens. Let's start owning this a little bit. And if you're sitting out there going, Chris, you're being totally unreasonable about this. You're being totally unreasonable. My 12-year-old can't make those kind of decisions. My 12-year-old can't can determine that. Well, then your 12-year-old is not ready to be a Christian because this is what we're talking about. So we look in 1 Corinthians 15. You know we're going to read, but I want to give you a little bit of context for it. Each friend of a young person makes a difference. The friends that you choose, the companions of your youth. Everybody knows that the Bible says in verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. I mean, you knew that verse, even without having to turn there. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. But do you know what this context is about? I think sometimes we read that verse and we wonder, so what are you saying? Are you saying that, that myself as a dad and my son, that we're only allowed to hang out with Christians only people who are part of the church are allowed to be in our inner circle. I'm not saying that here. This text was about, look back with me a little bit higher up. Look up in verse 12. This text is not about just any companion out there who's not a Christian. This passage is about people. Let me just read it. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how does some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? When he says evil companions, bad company, he's not saying everybody who's not a member of the church. He's saying everyone who denies the lordship and authority of Jesus Christ. Now, this may be a controversial thing to say, but you know, I have people in my inner circle in my life who have not yet understood and obeyed the gospel in baptism. They worship at churches that may have instruments, and they misunderstand some other things. But these people know that there's a God. They know Jesus died for them. And to the best of their knowledge, they are trying to serve the Lord. And I've got no problem with my teenager hanging out with their teenager, if that's the attitude. So I would just say this. You're like, man, who am I even allowed to hang out with then? I would say, whoever you choose to hang out with at school, they may not all be Christians. But let me ask you this. Do they believe that Jesus is God in heaven? Have you asked them that? Do they believe that they, they need to be doing what God says? Because if you've got somebody close to you in your life who does not believe they need to do what God said, you do not need those people close to you in this life. They go into the outer circle. I did a podcast on this. They go into the outer circle. It's not the outer darkness. Okay, we don't throw them off a cliff. But they get moved out of your sphere of influence. You see, my inner circle is surrounded by people who I want to influence me. And my outer circle is filled with people whom I would like to influence. And we've got to be careful with that. There was this Ohio State player named Maurice Claret. I don't know, about 10 years ago, time flies. Could have been 15 years ago. He was going to be the man. And he flunked out of the NFL and it all fell apart because of the people he surrounded himself with and the things that they were interested or disinterested in. Now Maurice Claret travels around the country and he tells this simple, powerful line. You show me your friends. And I will show you your future. Who am I going to become? What are my values going to be? Am I going to be a Christian when I get older? 
Am I going to be active in the church? I'll, I'll answer that question by asking you a question. The people you hang out with, are they Christians? Do they love God? Are they interested in the work of the Lord? There's another guy, I like this one, I found it more recently. A speaker and author named Jim Rohn. Jim Rohn said this, You will be the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Now, I like the tangibility of that statement. I mean, you ought to be able to sit down tonight before you go to bed and think, who do I spend the most time with? During my week, my friends, who, who would be the five people that I, I text the most, call the most, see the most, interact with the most? Now, if I just kind of ended up somewhere in the middle of their value system, of their respect for their parents, of the way they live, how am I going to be in the judgment? If the answer is not good, then it's time to reevaluate. 1 Corinthians 15 is very important. Do not be deceived. Joining yourself closely with people who do not believe in honoring Jesus will cause you to honor Jesus less. And that's not you admitting to some weakness in yourself, although it would probably be a good idea to do that. It's just the way that it is in life and relationships. And I'm going to push this button just a little bit further, and I'm going to go to the familiar text to do it, although I know it's not mentioned in this text. Go to 2 Corinthians 6. I'm going to add a little bit more to this. I wasn't going to put this in the lesson, but just last week we were studying 2 Corinthians 6 at the Lindale Church. We were talking about that verse that everybody knows, right? Everybody knows the verse. Do not be what? Verse 14. Some versions say, do not be unequally yoked. This version says, verse 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership? And then there's this great list, right? What partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? What would they ever have in common? Or what fellowship has light and darkness? They oppose each other. What harmony has Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And that's kind of the point here. It's, it's about them giving up their relationship with Paul. If you really read this context, he's like, why you guys? It's like you left me, though I love you, for idols. That's kind of what it's about. And he goes on to talk about that further. Now, I'm going to use that verse the way preachers... I try not to be traditional in the way preachers use verses. Like, if there's another way to get there, I'm going to get there. But this is the best way to get there. And I'm going to show you why. It's not for the reason that you think. Young people, you're going to marry who you date. You, unless we as parents got our way. <laughs> and it wouldn't work that way at all. We would just, uh, you know, exchange some goats and stuff. But look, in this culture... The person you spend time with, you're going to pick somebody out of those people and you're going to have a special relationship with them. And then you're going to, so by the way, you know, you already want to be careful with that. And then you're going to marry them. I don't know what your position here is or what Bob teaches about marrying people who aren't Christians. I'm not going to drop some big bomb about that, about what is or is not sin. I'm not going to start giving you stories and counter your one story where it all turned around with nine stories where it didn't. I'm not going to do all that to you. Instead, what I really want you to do is I want you to take a look at verse 17. Here's what the Bible says. If you find yourself connected with someone who is not a believer in whatever way, I haven't specified in what way, you find yourself kind of hooked up with them, verse 14. We sometimes use this text for business partnerships and stuff like that. I don't care what you want to put here. Here's the principle. If you find yourself connected to an unbeliever, to somebody who's lawless, to somebody who's darkness or follows Belial or who is an unbeliever, who is an idol, what are you supposed to do, verse 17? Just live in it? That would be foolishness. Just keep letting that pull you around. Verse 17 says, here's what you do. Get out of there. Come out from their midst and be separate. Do not touch what is unclean. God said, I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. He said, get out of that situation. People say, well, this is about business partnership. Look, it may cost you. 
But you can get out of a business partnership, okay? You cannot run away from a marriage. Save for the cause of divorce, for immorality. That will be someone to whom you are yoked, tied together, and you will be unable, and I don't mean it the way it sounds, maybe a little bit, you will be unable to do what God told you to do. He said, get out of there, but you can't get out of that. So it seems to me that of every relationship you would even think about joining, you would only marry someone who would help you in your walk with God. Is that, is that fair if I just go that far and leave that right there? That's where we're going to stop that. Okay, so here's the deal. The first two categories, I'm talking to the young person yourself. You're the one who chooses your friends. You choose who to marry. You choose how often you pray every day. You choose to own up. We just, we're just going to help you with that. The elders are going to help you with that. Your parents are going to help you with that and all those kinds of things. Now I want to branch out and talk about some other folks a little bit. And this is where everybody gets to join the party. If you're here and you don't have any kids at all or you've never been married or your kids are gone, if you're a member of a local church, this next few minutes is for you. If we really want to raise them right, it's going to take everyone. Everybody matters. Every member of the Lind I tell them all the time, I'm preaching. Every member of the Lindell Church is helping me raise two teenagers right now. They're helping me. If they come to, faithful, uh, come to worship faithfully and they prioritize that, that really helps me raise my son. Thank you for that. If they decide that something else is more important than worship and this kind of thing, they're just making it really hard on me to raise my son. I need your help. I tell them, oh, I've got two more coming up. We're outmatched two to one here. But really, we're not. We got them outnumbered with Christian influences. We just need to work on that together. The impact of church members. And I'm going to give you a couple of subcategories of that. Number one is just good old-fashioned sincerity and faithfulness. Go with me to Ephesians. Just like this passage for this. A lot of great passages about the attitude of Christians we can read in Ephesians 4 about how everybody's working together, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, verse 15. We're all trying to grow together. No one gets left behind in a local church. Everyone is involved in those kinds of things. But I would just back up there and begin in verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Watch this. Christians, you need to be humble and gentle and patient and tolerant and love each other. Christians, you need to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of what? Yeah. Peace. Local churches ought to be a place of peace. Remember that stuff yesterday, zipping the jacket, all that stuff? The way that Christians sometimes bicker and banter and fight. The aisle in some churches is a chasm a mile deep. And when you walk in the room, you pick a side. And I've seen it in my life, and my children need a better example than that. They need Christians that forgive each other, that are kind to each other, and tolerant of each other, and show what the mercies of God look like for them, because that's the kind of influence that we want to have. Verse 14, no longer tossed around. Verse 15, we need Christians who speak the truth. It's always about the truth, but the truth in love. 
We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. Remember that from yesterday? You can put a little line through every joint and put what I supply. According to the proper working of me causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I tell our folks at Linda all the time, part of that body are my four kids. And the Emerson family needs you. We need your kindness, your forgiveness, your faithfulness, your ability to stand up for what is right. It's going to make all the difference. And we need to get along. Remember I told you a little while ago, I feel like I need to explain a little bit. I told you that that church where where I went for a few years and I thought, we're just going to preach authority and it's all going to work out fine. And it didn't work out fine. And then I told you that at Lindale, that there were two generations where they lost 80% of their young people, there's a little detail I, I've, I neglected to mention. In both of those cases, those young people experienced church splits. They saw the dirtiest underbelly of what it looks like when everybody's a hero for truth and they all forgotten how to love each other. They saw that. They watched the fighting. They saw some families go to this church and some families go to that church. They saw the preacher storm out of the elder's office and start a place five minutes up the road and draw 50%, including their best friends. They saw all of that. Who would want to grow up and go to a church like that? That's what the world is like. The world is divisive in me. Now, am I saying that there's never a reason for a church to split? Kind of. But maybe there are reasons. But I got to tell you, I'm 41 years old. I can tell you the story of about seven church splits. Not a single one was based on doctrine, pure and undefiled. It's elders and preachers and some uh, deacon's daughter was a cheerleader. I, what in the world's going on? Listen carefully. When churches split, when Christians split, when there's that residue, and if it's happened, it's happened, it's gone. That scar tissue and the volleying and all of that. We're taking our kids' chances of wanting to be a part of the church, and we're just slicing them in half. You think you sliced the church in half? You sliced your kids' chances at faithfulness in half. I got a question. Who would be willing to swallow their pride, extend peace and patience, and maybe even give up a few things just for the sake of your children seeing Christians stay together? You know what the answer is? Not enough. Not enough. Sacrifice for the sake of our kids. That's what we're talking about. I could have you open your Bibles to Galatians 5 if you want to see how this kind of looks. You know, there's some stuff going on in the churches of Galatia. and A lot of Judaism influence and confusion. But what you'll find here is that they had these liberties, you know, these abilities they didn't have before. This lawfulness to engage in certain things, eat certain meats and do all this kind of stuff. And what he warned them about, I think is a warning that just needs to keep coming up again. What he warned them about in verse 13 is, You were called to freedom. Brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's what we want our kids to see. We want to see people who are willing to give up their liberties, people who are willing to extend incredible patience, because that's what God does. That's how God loves us, and that's the way He approaches it. You look for every option possible before we go separate ways, because that's the way God is. And it will feed into our Christians and to our children, Christians around us in our children's lives. But I've got good news. I want to make this totally positive. I don't care about this 80% stuff, 70% stuff. I'm not 
I'm not shooting for half my kids to be faithful. I'm not shooting for 100% is the only number I'm willing to accept. I only have a certain amount of control on this, but I am not willing to waver on expectations and planning. And what I'm here to tell you is, if you join a church that's sound and scripturally centered and teaches authority, and you teach your young people that when they come up out of the water, they're responsible for their own behavior, and you encourage them and help them be surrounded by Christian friends, or at least believers in the deity of Jesus, and Christians get along, we're like way up there in probabilities. We're going to make it hard on our kids to start throwing around all that junk people throw around like, that's a bunch of hypocrites up there and nobody gets along up there. Yeah, you know what? Some of those stories are true. Let's not give me stories like that. And then this last thing we'll do kind of briefly. You guys have been great tonight. We talked about it so much yesterday, but I think we do need to go ahead and talk about the parents just a little bit. We did it a lot yesterday. I've certainly seen people raised in homes without Christian parents who because some of these other things were in place, everything's worked out great. But it was in spite of their parents. We're going to talk about this again a little bit tomorrow night with a specific issue. But, you know, I want my children to dine at the table of the Lord, you know. And you, you get, anybody ever sat in a chair before? Are we doing good? Just make sure you're awake. That was a really simple one. You know, they usually have four legs on them, you know. And I want to, I want to put a chair with four legs at the table of the Lord. And I want my kids to just kind of sit in it, you know, and, and just sit there stable. And, and the only way they'd fall, I actually have a six-year-old who can fall out of any chair, I mean, it can have rails on the side, it can have a seat belt, she can fall out of it. But that's why she's not a Christian yet, you know. But when they grow up, I want to be able to sit in the chair. But if parents are not leading with the right example, you know, and that's all that Ephesians 6, 4 and Colossians 3 and, and not exasperating the hypocrisy. It's like saying, all right, kids, here's the deal. Go over there and sit at that table. I'm not going to come with you. It's, not, it's worse than that. It's worse than that. It's not just saying, hey, you go over there and you sit at the table of God. It's saying, hang on, and you take two of the legs out and you take them with you. Go sit at the table of the Lord and you walk off with the two corner legs. You ever try to sit in a chair with just two corner legs? It's possible. It's very difficult. Parents, you want your kids to have all four legs in that chair. And that means you've got to be right there with them. I would just say this as we finish. I want you to go to Hebrews 12. We talked about that a lot, so we're not going to push it too much further. Yesterday, one of the biggest points that we tried to make early on yesterday is mom and dad would just really self-evaluate. Work on your faith, mom and dad, grandma and grandpa. Work on your marriage. Work on your penitence. And it's going to have this terrific effect. You sit at the table right beside them, it goes great. But I just want to mention one more thing. One more thing, and it's this. I told you yesterday that the discipline between parents and children is a reflection of the discipline between God and His people. They're supposed to be the same in that sense. And this is the passage that helps you understand that. Look in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 7, for instance. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. So God's saying, I'm going to use a parent-child relationship to make my point here. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, and you are illegitimate children and not sons. Isn't that interesting? Legitimacy and discipline go together. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness.
I just want to encourage parents with something, grandma and grandpa too, as we close out this lesson. Instead of going through this whole deal about setting a good example, let me say this. I pray that the form of discipline you are using with your children is consistent with the form of discipline God uses with Christians. That you're showing them what it's like. You're showing them what an authority system looks like. You're showing them that when you follow the rules, there are rewards. And when you fail to follow the rules, there are no backup plans. Is there a backup plan with God? If there is one, let me know tonight. If there's this backup plan where you cannot do what God says, and you cannot listen, and you can talk back to God, and you can go behind God's back, and God's like, I was just kidding, you can have all that stuff. You show me that verse. It's not there. So what happens if parents raise their kids compromising all along the way? And then when the kid leaves, gets married, and you say, by the way, I mentioned this to you yesterday, by the way, the way I disciplined you, all the way we did the rules here, God's nothing like that. Everything's different with God. Everything you learned here about being responsible and producing around the table, olives we talked about last night, all that stuff that we didn't talk about at home, now you got to go get that. Folks, they're not going to get it. They're not going to get it. How is a 22-year-old going to understand how to succumb and follow the authority of God if when he was 16, he didn't have to do that with his parents. Mom and dad, we're doing more than just raising our kids. We're raising Christians. We're raising people who understand the way rules work. And I'm just going to push one more button here. Probably going to get in trouble. But you know, hey, oh, it's not the last night. Never mind, I won't say it yet. No, I'm going to do it. I don't know what, Bob, what you teach here about disfellowship and withdrawal and changing social relationships when it comes to your adult children. They've grown up, they've fallen away from God. I don't know if you still have the holidays with them or go to the park with them or call them every day and act like nothing's happened. But I want to warn you about something. If it's not the way God deals with them, it's not the way you should be dealing with them. The way you interact with them, the conversations you have with them, and the way your relationship changed when they, when they left the Lord, it ought to mirror what's happened with God. Son, our relationship's going to be the same. We're going to go hunting together. We're going to go fishing together. We're going to do our stuff together. Just know that God's not with us. God's done you differently. God's put you away. God's cut you off, but I'm not going to cut you off. Mom, Mom and Dad, why aren't you disciplining them like God's discipline? Well, I just love them so much. You think you love them more than God does? That'd be pretty hard to do. And God has put them away until they choose to come back to Him. That's what God did. I would just encourage parents to model what is true with God should be true with you. But here's the good news. If we do this, five things, there they are, each of them a sermon of itself. But if we get these five things working... By the way, on this last one, you should hear the conversations I've had with my teenagers on this. I want them to know well ahead of time. Well, I'm already in this. I may as well keep talking, just keep digging. Well into this conversation where I just let them know, look, if you grow up and leave the Lord one day, you're going to force us to do the hardest thing any human being in this earth, in this generation, could ever be asked to do. You're going to be asking us to move through this life without you. Please don't make us do that. Because we've got to stand with God. She knows. That's really important. Educating your children on the truth is super important instead of just sort of applying it later, right? But here's the thing. If they have these pieces in place, there is no reason why this entire group that's here today, no matter where you're visiting from, got some visitors from across town, across state lines, everyone in this room could be a Christian for the duration of your life. 
all of our teenagers could be. Can you imagine how it would transform a church if we just had one generation where everybody continued to serve God? It could transform lives in every direction. Let's do it. We can do it. God can help. If there's something missing on this sheet, you're thinking, I've really faltered on this. I need to change this. And you ought to go to God and pray about that. But if you need the encouragement of this church, if you want God's people here to rally around you and support you, that's what we're really here to do. We're not here to fight about stuff. We're here to support each other. If you're not a Christian, the support you need is found in the arms of Jesus. And you can do that now. You can obey the gospel. You can be baptized into Christ and be forgiven and walk new and whole in Him. That's the mission. That's the goal. Just come forward now as we stand and sing.